Ian, I'm wondering if I can borrow your Bible because the Bible on the lectern has has disappeared. Uh, And do have a Bible in front of you and do turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. As Ian said, we're going to uh, be continuing uh, in our series looking at each of these Beatitudes, these statements, declarations of blessing that Jesus makes as he begins this uh, Sermon on the Mount. And uh, although we'll make reference to Isaiah 59, that backdrop is helpful for thinking about what Jesus is talking about here. As in verse 6, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It will be helpful if you have the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be referring to a number of other verses in the sermon to help us understand what's going on. Let's just pray again and ask for the Lord's help. Lord, we've just sung those words taken from Psalm 42 of our desire for you. We're thirsty people. Uh, Spiritually, we can so often be like a desert. And what we require is the living water that only Christ brings. And so we pray this morning that he would minister to us. And Lord, we pray you'd help us particularly this morning as we think about this sense of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Lord, we can be in a world that wants comfort, wants assurance, and indeed your gospel brings that. But it does so through righteousness. And so we pray that we would leave here hungering and thirsting for righteousness this morning. Be amongst us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you were on the prayer meeting on uh, Wednesday, Keith Charlton was leading that time, and he reminded us that over the course of uh, the next year, over the course of 2024, there will be elections in over 50 countries of the world. I think Time magazine suggests that more voters than ever before in the world's history will go to the polls this year in what that magazine describes as high-stake elections. Keith reminded us on Wednesday that 2024, therefore, may be a year of change. Under God's sovereign hand, change, we pray, for the furtherance of the gospel. Every time an election rolls by, and of course, in our own country, we're anticipating that in the next 12 months there will be a general election, but every time an election rolls round, politicians make claims, don't they, about how they can make this place a better one. No one on those television debates, even the ruling party, ever says, well, actually, things are pretty perfect as they are. Even the ruling party, as they trumpet their own record in office, will still say there's more that can be done. There's more we want to do. And that's not just individuals simply wanting to prove their political muscle. No, you want change. I want change to some degree or another. No canvassing activist knocking on your front door is going to persuade you to vote for their party by saying, aren't things good? If we get into power, we're not going to change a thing. Because you and I have a better view of life than the one we live in. We have a better view of a a better country. 
And even if you are thoroughly cynical about politics and think things in this country are never going to change, even then, my guess is you still have a longing for your neighbourhood. You still have a longing for your experience the next time you go for a hospital appointment. We have this certain sense of community and how it can be better. Our moral imagination is able to conceive of fruitful alternatives to the present realities in which we live. And that in itself should intrigue you. Why do we think like that? Why do you and I think that this place, even this country, could be better than it is? The rest of the animals do not discuss new forms of government, the introduction of a welfare system, how to care for people better in the community. They don't do that, do they? But human beings do. But human beings ever since, well, I'd say we were locked out of the garden or maybe since we were given that command as image bearers to be fruitful, to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over it, have had this taste for a place where love and justice and mercy reign and have felt its absence since our first parents were escorted out of Eden. The passage we read earlier highlights that from Isaiah 59. don't need to turn there, but I'm sure you picked up some of the phrases that Isaiah speaks of as he speaks about the state of the nation. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed blood. They pursue evil screens. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. He was speaking about a particular dark time in Israel's history. And yet, over two and a half thousand years later, we wouldn't say those things are foreign to us. Every one of us still longs for a kinder world, don't we? Story is told and I understand it to be a true story, of a lady who lived in Prague, Czechoslovakia, in the turbulent days of November 1989. She had a terrible cold. When she went to bed, the communists were firmly in power. She sweated and slept for several days. Eventually, she felt well enough to get up and make some tea. Then turning on the television, she was shocked to see almost a million people praying the Lord's Prayer something unthinkable in communist Czechoslovakia. She thought she was experiencing the second coming of Christ. The reality was a little less dramatic, but power had changed hands and a corrupt elite had fallen. People were giving thanks and seeking a vision for a better country. Why did people in Prague that November day the most secular nation in Europe, pray the prayer of Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth? The immediate answer was because the meeting was being led by a priest. But it's interesting because when Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, isn't he urging his followers to long for something better? That longing is captured by these words. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, he says. But what is that? And just as importantly, how do you and I relate to that righteousness? 
You see, it's one thing to long for a better country or neighborhood. It's another to be a citizen who expresses those virtues in their own dealings. We can bemoan injustice when it adversely affects us. But it is our relating to others infused by right attitudes, motives, and even actions. Jesus is not asking us, do we long for a better life? But do we hunger for a goodness, a kindness, a justice that eludes us as human beings, both personally and communally? So let's consider what Jesus means when he speaks of those hungering and thirsting for righteousness before considering why is it blessed and then how this statement should shape our living. What does Jesus mean? In the city of Geneva in Switzerland, there is a sculpture by a Romanian artist, and I probably pronounced his name wrong, but I think it's Livy Lou Mocan, called The Invitation or the Decalogue. That's what it looks like. That's a miniature version of it. It consists of 12 gold fingers, each five meters high, and they form, as you can see there, a circle. On the outside, those fingers are roughly hewn, but within they are polished, smooth, comforting. They sit as if they create a protective ring around an inner space. Each finger is said to represent one of the Ten Commandments, as we know them. So one finger represents the command, do not murder. Another, honor your father and mother. The sculpture tries to picture our reaction to God's law as fallen human beings. From the outside, it seems intimidating, threatening. Even for some, because we see it as bringing restrictions, a loss of freedom, in our modern understanding of that word at any rate, seeks to capture that sense that many in our world today have of seeing a call to obedience as a call to servitude. But inside the circle, take, do not murder. The circle keeps the person with murderous intent on the outside but invites those who refuse to consider murder as an option in. The space inside is free of murder and, as we'll think about in a moment, a space free of all the attitudes and actions that lead to it. What remains in that circle is life that can be lived to the full. Equally, this space creates freedom to trust. Do not bear false witness. The confusion and waste that lies cause. Not present inside that circle. What I find intriguing about this sculpture is it seems to capture what the law of God was always intended to lay the foundation for the life that you and I long for. We want a world, don't we? With no murder. We want a world when we can absolutely trust what someone else is telling us. Many of us have observed that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is in a way an exposition of the Ten Commandments. If you peer over the page, rest of chapter 5, notice the heading above verse 17, the fulfillment of the law, verse 21 and verse 27. He quotes from the Ten Commandments as they are in Exodus 20. 
And indeed, throughout the remaining of, remainder of chapter 5 are references to different parts of that wider law given at Sinai. At each stage, Jesus shines the spotlight on the hidden corners of our hearts, our attitudes. So just glance there at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. We all want a society that refuses murder. But Jesus, of course, exposes the hidden attitudes that are a part of that road that can lead to murder, the slow-burning hatred, the inflamed and irrational imagination that distorts reality, petty acts of revenge and tedious self-justification, gossip and slander, the cancelling of others. We watch the news and hear about the latest teenager stabbed to death. We all wish that wasn't a thing. Oh, to live in a community where we did not fear the dark or feel threatened by others. We might hunger for that. But harbor murderous thoughts, and Jesus says, you'll be subject to judgment. You're on the outside. We prefer good to evil, yes. But there is, you see, an unbending aspect to goodness. You cannot have a little bit of murder and still be good, Jesus is saying. On the one hand, we all want a more righteous world if it means justice, freedom from oppression. But Jesus turns the spotlight of righteousness round in this sermon. For as he exposits the law, he does so using the word righteousness time and time again. Verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, the justice, the righteousness, the goodness you long for is not available on your terms. Only God's. Of course, the first three Beatitudes have reminded us of our condition, haven't they? Poverty of spirit, spiritually bankrupt before God. Separated from God and so grieving, mourning the state of our world and the state of our lives. Meekness. Acknowledging the God who is and seeking to trust his sovereign power and steadfast love. We find ourselves not able to demand our terms before God because of our sin and because we are only creatures, he is the creator. These beatitudes bring us, don't they, to a place of humble submission that will increasingly shape our longing for God, his rule, his righteousness. Poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, create a posture to listen to an alternate voice than the pretend wisdom of our own hearts, to listen to God and his word. But as we, humble, as we are humble to listen to God's voice, as we, let, as we meditate on his ways, his will, as we let his word get inside us, challenge us and change our vision of the world, of what it might be, of what your life might be, that is the seed's 
of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's so wonderfully captured in Psalm 119, in those opening verses. Have I got it for us there? Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Then, hear the psalmist's next words. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame. When I consider all your commands... I'll praise you with an upright heart. That is to hunger and thirst for righteousness, a desire to live in and live out the will of God. Not only to see the blessedness of God's ways, but also to long, oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. I want us to notice this is more than simply resting in a status that God makes me righteous in Christ. We talk about that, we sing about that, and that's important. But Jesus is talking about more than that here. We'll see how to understand what Jesus is saying in the light of that glorious gospel truth in a moment. But friends, the language here is a call to action. It is a living that desires to walk in the goodness of God's ways and his promises. It's not just simply wanting our lives to be a bit better in this area. Still less thinking of righteousness as a luxury item in the Christian life for the super king. Jesus is speaking of one who hungers and thirsts for it, who cannot get along without righteousness. Listen to what one commentator says. He says this, Many today are prepared to seek other things. Spiritual maturity, real happiness, the Spirit's power, effective witnessing skills. Other, preachers, other people chase from preacher to preacher and conference to conference. If he was writing today, he might say podcast to podcast, seeking some vague blessing from on high. They hunger for spiritual experience. They thirst for consciousness of God. But how many hunger and thirst for righteousness? Challenging, isn't it? We need to move on, but don't miss, Jesus does not say blessed are the righteous, but those who hunger and thirst for it. Perhaps you feel your lack of righteousness right now. But that is not so much the point. The point is, are you hungry for it? Are you hungry for the rule and reign of God in all its purity and holiness? In your life more in this world more. A longing for heaven. Wherever you are in your Christian journey, is there a sense of longing for more of God and his righteousness? As Jesus says later, doesn't he, very clearly in his sermon, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things be given to you. Friend, it's one of the key marks of a spiritual life. Do you long, oh, that my ways were steadfast? Do you hunger that your life conforms more and more to God's will? Such a person is not drifting aimlessly as a Christian. Perhaps you feel that at times, drifting aimlessly. Not, you won't be. Focused on God and his righteousness. 
You're not distracted by inconsequential and trivial arguments. Rather, such a person echoes the prayer of a certain Scottish saint who cried, O God, make me just as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. Do you delight in God's word? Do you want to be righteous, not simply because you fear God or you fear judgment day, but because righteousness is the most desirable space in which you would live and breathe and dwell and contribute to without spoiling it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So, secondly, why is such a state condition blessed according to Jesus You see, considering how to satisfy one's hunger is a really important question, isn't it? In all of life, I no longer eat McDonald's because they don't really cater for those with celiac disease. But I am unashamed to say, growing up, I was a sucker for a McDonald's cheeseburger. Might be one of the best ways to spend 99p, in my opinion. But it wasn't the best way to spend 99p if you were hungry. Even when I was able to eat cheeseburgers, I realized fairly quickly McDonald's cheeseburgers never fill you up. Tasty as they are, they never fill you up. It's not just what we fill our stomachs with when we are hungry that we need to be wise about. Choose the wrong things to fill your appetite, the appetite you have for goodness in life, and you will never be satisfied. It will never be enough. You will never be filled. We're all on the quest, aren't we, for the good life. And not many would think it is discovered down the righteousness route. But here's the thing. Think about this. If you ask people what they really want, maybe at first they will talk about wealth and success. But if you let them talk more, if, you, if they open up more personally, they will soon talk about the quality of their relationships. Because it is in our relationships, isn't it, that we find so much meaning as human beings. In taking quite a number of funeral services over the past 10 years, I've noticed that the most rich funeral services, those I've come away feeling I was privileged to be there, are when it is evident that the life of the deceased person was focused on other people that they sought as much as possible to live in right relationship with others. We are made for relationship. We long for community where we can be ourselves and we can be loved. But the brokenness and regret of our lives is often, so often, isn't it relational? What if our CVs were not a record of our academic achievement or the jobs we've held down? but a record of our relationships with our parents, our friends, boyfriends, girlfriends, spouse, or children, what would you say? But think about such relationships if everyone was living out the righteousness that we have spoken of, a world where truth and kindness and generosity always win. What if if, if that world was breaking in enabling our hearts to be mended, putting the fragments of our lives back together bit by bit, enabling our hearts to be more and more in tune with God and his goodness and grace. 
You see, here is the happiness you seek. In righteousness. And you know what's the wonderful thing? If you're seeking righteousness, if you're hungering and thirsting for it, look there at verse 6. You will be filled. Go after anything else? I'm not promising you will. But Jesus says, you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you will be filled. Remember I've said it every week, the blessings of the Beatitudes are tied to Jesus. So while we have said that Jesus is talking about those with a genuine hunger and thirst for the will of God in their life, that they would be more and more intentionally choosing God and his ways, the satisfaction, the satisfying is not earned because these people have good intentions or good motives. They are filled, aren't they, because the kingdom of righteousness comes in Christ. That's why they will be filled. Because God and his righteous kingdom is coming. That the kingdom of heaven will become the kingdom of earth on earth. The yearning of the will for the will of God in our lives should take us to the word of God. And as we look to the word of God, we discover that time and time again it is a word of grace. A word of the promise of deliverance. In Jesus, indeed, Jesus himself comes to save his people from their sins. He makes a covenant in his blood by which the law is written upon our hearts. The, law, the Lord gives his famished people the desire of their hearts. Righteousness is a gift. The kingdom coming is the backdrop to this promise. The rule of God comes near in Jesus and so the reign of righteousness who through the cross takes our sin. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, that we might become the righteousness of God. The paradox of this fourth beatitude is that Jesus speaks about hungering and being satisfied almost at the same time. And that will be our earthly experience as believers. We're normally used to experience them as alternatives, don't they? When you're hungry, you're not satisfied. And when you're satisfied, you're no longer hungry. But Christ speaks of a deep hunger and a profound satisfaction that grow together in the same human heart. The righteousness of which Christ fills us is so wonderful that we long for it more because the righteousness that he fills us with is himself. And so like in any relationship, that one you love, you, to know them once is wonderful but to keep knowing them for more. The Christian, the more the Christian is filled, the more he or she hungers and thirsts for Christ. Like the psalmist in Psalm 119 who sees how wonderful the ways of God are, he tastes of it and he longs, oh, that my ways were steadfast. More, more. One day, of course, the second coming of Christ, that longing will be finally satisfied. John records in his vision in Revelation 7, doesn't he? That great multitude dressed in white all before the throne. And we read those words, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. Here's the thing. This longing, this hungering, friends, will be satisfied. Have you thought how wonderful that is? 
We've considered how our longing for our lives and the community we live would be transformed by the reign of God's righteousness, God's rule. Friends, here is happiness. How absent this righteous naturally is in our hearts and in this world, and we feel that. You and I can run after all sorts of other things in search of satisfaction. But the kingdom of goodness and peace will come, will be established. And in Christ, you and I can belong. So long for this. Look to Jesus. He is the happiness you seek. And you will be satisfied. You will be filled. So how should we finally, should Jesus' statement shape us? I'm hoping it's shaping you already. But here's a few things for us. Firstly, for all of us, but particularly church, be clear, be absolutely clear in your mind why righteousness matters. This beatitude begins with this sense about how life should be. To a certain degree, even in our world today, it's easy to imagine evil because the media delivers a daily reminder of catastrophe and sadness in our world. We recognize evil by the anxiety that surrounds it and how it turns us inward and separates from others. But our culture is much more fuzzy about goodness because it downplays and denies absolute truth. Goodness and righteousness suggest a transcendent God. So, if you're not a believer here, here's a question. How would you answer that question? Why does goodness and righteousness matter? Why do you sense that it matters? But if you're a Christian, love righteousness. Remember Psalm 1? Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. When the psalm is written, the psalmist is talking about the Ten Commandments, primarily. Do you delight in them? Ask yourself, do you like delight in those? If you don't, you'll never hunger for righteousness. Think about why it's good. Why are they good? What is the wonder of the space that these Ten Commandments create that is so often absent in my life and your life? So again, where these first three Beatitudes give momentum, poverty in spirit, Mourning, meekness. Leverage those together in your life. But it's so important, friends. Why do churches move away from biblical teaching on ethical issues? Not firstly because of the pressure of the culture from outside, but because they stop delighting in God and his ways. They cannot say hand on heart, like the psalmist in Psalm 199, oh, I love your law. That's the danger. Church, do you delight in God's law, not to beat others with it, 
but because of the wonder of the beauty and goodness that his will presents. Righteousness is not simply about knowing the rules and keeping them, but enjoying God, his ways, his purposes. The purpose is not a badge of honor, another entry on your CV. The purpose of righteousness is wholeness of being, to be who you've always meant to be, in and outside, wholeness in your community, wholeness in your relationship with others, and, of course, with your maker. See it in this sermon, don't you? Verse 20 of chapter 5, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Then after he, the, this exposition the Lord Jesus gives, verse 48, you know it, be perfect, therefore, or be whole, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect or whole. Jesus is the one, verse 17, who does not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He's the one who makes possible all that God intends for the flourishing of his people in terms of righteousness. Friends, there is a wonder to the purposes of God for his people. Embrace it. Don't just say, I don't need God's law anymore. It's all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. But Jesus lives out God's law. He shows us the beauty of it. Peter, in his second letter, put it this way, chapter 3, verse 13. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Second, use the blessing. So there, love righteousness. Second, use the blessings and troubles of your life as incentives to feed on this truth. Hungering and thirsting for the righteousness that Christ gives us. Thomas Watson, the Puritan pastor who writes wonderfully on the Beatitudes, says we need two things to stimulate our spiritual appetite towards righteousness. One, first one, you're not going to forget this. Sauce. Ketchup. Sauce makes food attractive. Many a parent knows that the last resort to help their kids eat their dinner is to reach for the tomato ketchup. Watson says God can use the sweet sauce of our blessing, the sour sauce of our troubles, and the hot sauce of our persecution to increase our hunger for righteousness. Perhaps you want to use your time in home groups this week to talk about how that works. In what ways are the blessings of our lives appetizers for the place where righteousness dwelt? In what ways are the troubles of our lives reminders that this is not home and, a pl- and the place of righteousness and peace is still ahead, still certain? Use the blessings and troubles of your life to leverage your thirst for righteousness. Third, Watson says the other way to develop appetite, source is one way, the other way to develop an appetite is, hung, is exercise. Exercise. Friends, the local church is the arena for exercise. Here is a community brought together on the basis of righteousness alone. Not our own, but Christ's. 
we form one body as individual members where we are called to display his righteous reign in our lives. In Aylesbury, if someone should stop, have a conversation and say, where in Aylesbury right now do we see the reign of God and his righteousness? Where do you see it right now? Limes Avenue Baptist Church should be on that list. Hopefully other churches as well. But Limes Avenue Baptist Church should be on a list. If you want a taste of the reign of God and his righteousness and his blessing now, Limes Avenue Baptist Church. It's a longing. A place where believers love one another, bear with one another, encourage one another. You know that list. Friends, at times there is a sweetness to that work. There are moments of heaven. But it is also hard work. Because we are sinners, we get grumpy, we can be hard to love, we can hold at arm's length people's encouragement for us, and we need more of Christ and his righteousness. We need his word taught to us, because we need his wisdom and his grace. We need the promise held out before us that Christ has overcome and he will return and sorrow and sighing and will flee away. And so church should be a place where we taste the righteousness of God, but everyone comes hungering for more of it because we feel its absence week by week. But friends, the local church should be the place where love of God and love of neighbor is tangible. And love of God and love of neighbor is seen as beautiful. Finally, Jesus, Jesus alone saves and sanctifies his people. Let's be clear, hungering for righteousness. I hope you leave here hungering for more righteousness, Christ. But where should it always lead you? Always to the feet of Jesus. Not to self-striving, not earning your merit through other ways, always to the feet of Jesus. To seek his face in repentance and believing, in repentance with a believing heart. And the wonder of his love is the catalyst for purity. I can point to many passages in the New Testament, but here's what the Apostle John says. Behold the manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, on you, Christian, that you should be called the Son of God. We should be called the children, the Son of God, sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, <laughs> Anyone who has this hope purifies themselves, even as Christ is pure. Feast on the gospel and hunger for more of Christ. A.W. Tozer penned this prayer, which describes this posture so well. And with this, I will finish. You can pray along if you want to. O oh God, I have tasted your goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirst for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O oh God, the triune God, I want to know you. I long to, to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me your glory, I pray, that I may know you indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. 
Say to my soul, rise up, my love, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow you. Up from this misty lowland where I've wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen.